Section 12 of The White Wolf and Other Fireside Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. The White Wolf and Other Fireside Tales by Sir Arthur Quiller Couch. Section 12. The Sellers of Rueda. Part 2. Captain McNeill's Adventures. But how on earth came you here? was the unspoken question in the eyes of both of us, and each reading the reflection of his own, we both broke out together into a laugh, though my kinsman's was all but inaudible, and after it he lay back on his pillow, an old knapsack, and panted. My story must needs be the shorter, said I, so let us have it over and get it out of the way. I come from watching Caffarelli in the north, and for the last four days have been taking a holiday, and twiddling my fingers in camp here, just across the Sapardil. Happening this afternoon to stroll to this amazing rock, I fell in with the Reverend Father here, and most incautiously told him my name, since which he has been leading me a dance which may or may not have turned my hair grey. The Reverend Father? echoed Captain Allen. He has not, said I, turning upon my guide, who stood apart with a baffling smile, as yet done me the honour to reciprocate my weak confidences. Captain Allen, too, stared at him. Are you a priest, sir? he demanded. He was answered by a bow. You didn't know it, cried I. It's the one thing he has allowed me to discover. But I understood that you were a scholar, sir. The two callings are not incompatible, I hope of the University of Salamanca. A doctor, too. My memory is yet weak, but surely I had it from your own lips that you were a doctor. Of moral philosophy, the old man answered with another bow. Of the College of the Conception, now, alas, destroyed. The care with which you have tended me, sir, has helped my mistake, and now my gratitude for it must help my apologies. I fear I have from time to time allowed my tongue to take many liberties with your profession. You have, to be sure, been somewhat hard with us. My prejudice is an honest one, sir. Of that there can be no possible doubt, but it must frequently have pained you. Not the least in the world, the old doctor assured him, almost with bonhomie. Besides, you are suffering from sunstroke. My kinsman eyed him, and I could have laughed to watch it, that gaze betrayed a faint expiring hope that after all his diatribes against the scarlet woman had shaken the doctor, upon whom, I need scarcely say, they had produced about as much effect as upon the rock of Rueda itself. And I think that, though regretfully, he must at length have realised this, for he sank back on the pillow again with a gentle weariness in every line of his Don Quixote face. Ah, yes, from sunstroke. My cousin, here he turned towards me, this gentleman, or, as I must now learn to call him, this most reverend doctor of philosophy, Gil Consalveth de Covadonga, found me some days ago stretched unconscious beside the high road to Tordesillas, and in two ways has saved my life. First, by conveying me to this hiding place, for the whole terrain was occupied by my month's troops, and I lay there in my scarlet tunic, a windfall for the first French patrol that might pass and secondly, by nursing me through delirium back to health of mind and strength of body. The latter has yet to come, Senor Capitano, the doctor interposed. And I, 
my cousin your distaste for disguise will yet be the death of you but tell me what were you doing in this neighbourhood why watching marmont to be sure as my orders were your orders you don't mean to tell me that lord wellington knows of your return i reported myself to him on the nineteenth of last month in the camp on san cristoval he gave me my directions that same evening but heavens i cried it is barely a week ago that i returned from the north and had an hour's interview with him and he never mentioned your name though aware as he must be that no news in the world could give me more joy is that so cousin he gazed at me earnestly and wistfully as i thought you know it is so i answered turning my face away that he might not see my emotion and as for lord wellington's silence captain allen went on after musing a while he has a great capacity for it as you know and perhaps he has persuaded himself that we work better apart our later performances in and around sabugal might well excuse that belief but now i suppose you have some message for him is it urgent or will you satisfy me first how you came here you whom i left a prisoner on the road to bayonne and as i desperately thought to execution there is no message for i broke down before my work had well recommenced and wellington knows of my illness and my whereabouts so there is no urgency he glanced at the doctor and so did i the reverend father's behaviour assuredly suggested urgency i said and was there none asked the old man quietly you sons of war chase the oldest of human illusions to you nothing is of moment but the impact of brutal forces or the earthly cunning which arrays and moves them to me all this is less hateful than contemptible in moment not comparable with the joy of a single human soul believe me my sons although the french have destroyed my peerless university fortis salamantina arx sapientia i were less eager to hurry god's avenging hand on them than to bring together two souls which in the pure joy of meeting soar for a moment together and fraternizing forget this world nay deny it not for i saw it standing by least of all be ashamed of it i am not sure that i understand you holy father i answered but you have done us a true service and shall be rewarded by a confession from a stubborn heretic too i glanced at captain allen mischievously my kinsman put up a hand in protest oh i will prepare the way for you said i and by and by you will be astonished to find how easy it comes i turned to the doctor gonsalves you must know then my father that the captain and i though we follow the same business and with degrees of success we are too amiable to dispute about yet employ very different methods he for instance scorns disguises while i pride myself upon mine and by the way as a professor of moral philosophy you are doubtless used to deciding questions of casuistry for twenty years more or less i have presided at the public disputations in the sala de claustro of our university then perhaps you will resolve me the moral difference between hiding in a truss of hay and hiding under a wig for in faith i can see none that is a matter for the private conscience broke in captain allen pardon me suggested the doctor you promised me a narrative i believe we'll proceed then our methods this at least is important were different which made it the more distressing that the similarity of our names confused us in our enemies minds who grossly mistook us for one and the same person which not only humiliated us as artists but ended in positive inconvenience at sabugal in april last after a bewildering comedy of errors 
the Duke of Ragusa captured my kinsman here, and held him to account for some escapade of mine, of which, as a matter of fact, he had no knowledge whatever. You follow me? The doctor nodded gravely. Well, Marmont showed no vindictiveness, but said in effect, You have done, sir, much damage to our arms, and without stretching a point, I might have you hanged for a spy. I shall, however, treat you leniently, and send you to France into safekeeping, merely exacting your promise that you will not consent to be released by any of the partidas on the journey through Spain. My cousin might have answered that he had never done an hour's scouting in his life, save in the uniform of a British officer and nothing whatever to deserve the death of a spy. Suspecting, however, that I might be mixed up in the business, he gave his parole and set out for the frontier under the guard of a young cavalry officer and one trooper. Meanwhile, I had word of his capture, and knowing nothing of this parole, I posted to Lord Wellington, obtained a bond for 12,000 francs, payable for my kinsman's rescue, sought out the guerrilla chief, Mina, borrowed two men on Wellington's bond, the scoundrel would lend no more, and actually brought off the rescue at Biasain, a few miles on this side of the frontier. One of our shots broke the young officer's sword arm. The trooper was pitched from his horse and stunned, and behold, my kinsman in our hands, safe and sound. It was then, reverend father, that I first heard of his parole. He informed me of it, and, while thanking me for my succour, refused to accept it. Very well done, say you as a doctor of morality, but meanwhile I was searching the young officer, and finding a letter upon him from the Duke of Ragusa, broke the seal. Not so well done, say you. But again, wait a moment. This letter was addressed to the governor of Bayonne, and gave orders that Captain MacNeill, as a spy and a dangerous man, should be forwarded to Paris in irons. There was also a hint that a request for his execution might accompany him to Paris. And this was a prisoner who, on promise of clemency, had given his parole. Now what, in your opinion, was a fair course for our friend here? on proof of this dirty treachery. "'We'll reserve this as question number two, answered the doctor gravely, "'and proceed with the narrative, which, I opine, goes on to say that Captain MacNeill preferred his oath to the excuse for considering it annulled, collected his escort, shook hands with you, and went forward to his fate.' "'A man must save his soul,' Captain MacNeill explained modestly. "'You are to me, sir, a heretic, pardon my saying it, which prevents me from taking as cheerful a view as I could wish concerning your soul. But assuredly you saved your honour. Well, I hope so, the captain answered, picking up the story. But really, in the sequel, I had to take some decisions which, obvious as they seemed at the time, have since caused me grave searchings of heart, and upon which I shall be grateful for your opinion. Am I appealed to as a priest? Most certainly not, but as a professor. A title for which, by the way, we have in Scotland an extraordinary reverence. I rode on, sir, with my escort, and that night we reached Tolosa, where the young lieutenant, his name was Gerard, found a surgeon to set his bone. He suffered considerable pain, yet insisted next morning upon proceeding with me. I imagined his motives to have been mixed, but pleased myself with thinking that a latent desire to serve me made one of them. On the other hand, the seal of Marmont's letter had been broken in his keeping, a serious matter for a young officer, and one which he would naturally desire to defer explaining. At Tolosa he accounted for his wounds by some tale of brigands and a chance shot at long range. On the morrow we rode to Iran and crossed the Bidasoa. We were now on French soil. Throughout the morning he had spoken little, 
and I too had preferred my own thoughts. But now, as we broke our fast and cracked a bottle together at the first tavern on the French shore, I opened fire by asking him if he yet carried the marshal's letter with the broken seal. To be sure, said he. And what will you do with it? I went on. Why, deliver it, I suppose, to the governor of Bayonne, to whom it is addressed. And when asked to account for the broken seal, you will tell him the exact truth about it and the rescue? I must, he answered, and I hope my report will help you, sir. It will not be my fault if it does not. You are an excellent fellow, said I, but it will help me little. You do not know the contents of that letter as I do, not willingly, but because it was read aloud in my presence by the man who opened it. And before he could remonstrate, I had told him its purport. Now, sir, that was not quite fair to the young man, and I am not sure that it was strictly honourable. Captain McNeil paused with a question in his voice. Proceed, sir, said the doctor. I reserve this as question number three, remarking only that the young man owed you something for having saved his life. Just so, and that is where the unfairness came in. He was inexpressibly shocked. Why, he cried, the marshal had put you under parole. So far as the frontier, said I, the promise upon which I swore was that I would not consent to be released by the partidas on my journey through Spain. Once in France, I could not escape his vengeance. Now, for this very reason, I have a right to interpret my promise strictly, and I consider that during the past half hour, my parole has expired. I cannot deny it, he allowed, and took a pace or two up and down the room, then halted in front of me. You would suggest, sir, that since this letter was taken from me by the partidas, and you and I alone know that it was restored, I owe you the favour of suppressing it. Good heavens, my young friend, I exclaimed. I suggest nothing of the sort. I may ask you to risk for my sake a professional ambition, which is very dear to you, but certainly not to imperil your young soul by a falsehood. No, sir, if you will deliver me to the governor of Bayonne as a prisoner on honourable parole, which I will renew here and extend to the gates of that city only, and will then request an interview for the purpose of delivering your letter and explaining how the seal came to be broken, with Jolly, this was the trooper, for witness, you will gain me all the time I hope to need. That will be little enough, objected he. I must make the most of it, said I, and we must manage to time our arrival for the evening, when the governor will either be supping or at the theatre, that the delay, if possible, may be of his creating. I owe you more than this, said the ingenuous youth, and I, sir, I'm even ashamed of myself for asking so much, I answered. Well, so we contrived it, entered Bayonne at nightfall, presented ourselves at the Citadel, and were, to our inexpressible joy, received by the deputy governor, who heard the lieutenant's report, and endorsed the false paper of Barreau, which Marmont had given me, and which, in fact, had now expired. The fatal letter Lieutenant Gerard kept in his pocket, while demanding an interview with the governor himself. This, he was told, could not be granted until the morning. The governor was entertaining that night, and with a well-feigned reluctance, he saluted and withdrew. Outside the deputy door we parted without a word, and at the citadel gate, having shown my pass, which left me free to seek lodgings in the city, I halted, and under the sentry's nose, dropped a note into the governor's letter-box. I had written it at Undai, and addressed it to the Duke of Ragusa, and it ran, Monsieur le Marchal, 
i send this under cover of the governor from the city of bayonne out of which i hope to escape to-night having come so far in obedience to my word which appears to be more sacred than that of a marshal of france my escort having been overpowered between vittoria and tolosa i declined the rescue offered me but not before your letter to the governor had been broken open and its contents read in my presence this letter also i saw restored to its bearer who during its perusal lay unconscious of a severe and painful wound in his sword-arm i beg to assure you that he has behaved in all respects as a gentleman of courage and honour and conceiving that you owe me some reparation i shall rely on you that his prospects as a soldier are not in any way compromised by the miscarriage of your benevolent plans concerning me i laughed aloud and even the doctor relaxed his features bravo kinsman said i if marmont hates one thing more than another it's to see his majestic image diminished in the looking-glass but faith i'd have kept that letter in my pocket until i was many miles south of bayonne south you don't suppose i had any intention of escaping towards the pyrenees why my dear fellow that's the very direction in which they were bound to search oh very well said i a trifle nettled i will confess perhaps you preferred paris precisely was the cool answer i preferred paris and having but an hour or two to spare before the hotels closed i at once inquired at the chief hotels if any french officer were starting that night for the capital the first named if i remember the hotel de sud i drew blank at the second the trois couronnes i was informed that a chaise and four had been ordered by no less a man than general soham and would start that night as soon as he returned from supping with the governor i waited the general arrived a few minutes before ten o'clock i introduced myself general soham i groaned reverend father i have not yet tasted the wine of rueda it appears to me that the fumes are strong enough he tells me that he introduced himself to general soham and i assure you found him excellent company we travelled three in the chaise the general his aide-de-camp and your fortunate kinsman a second chaise followed with the general's baggage he and the aide-de-camp at times beguiled the road with a game of piquet for myself i disapprove of cards doubtless you told them so at an early stage i suggested with a last effort at irony i was obliged to seeing that the general challenged me to a parti but i did not i hope adopt a tone inconsistent with good fellowship we travelled through to paris with a few hours break at orleans an opportunity which i seized to purchase a suit of clothes more congruous than my uniform with the part i had to play in paris i had ventured to ask general soham's advice and he assured me that a british officer though a prisoner on parole might incur some risk from the parisian mob by wearing his uniform in public cousin said i henceforth pursue your tale without interruption there was a time when in my folly i presumed to criticise your methods i apologise on leaving the tailor's shop i was accosted by a wretched creature who had seen me alight from the chaise in his majesty's uniform and had followed but did not venture to introduce himself until i emerged in a less compromising garb he was it appeared a british agent and a traitor to his own country and i gathered that a part of his dirty trade lay in assisting british prisoners to break their parole he assumed that i travelled on parole and insinuated that i might have occasion to break it and with all the will in the world to crack his head i let the mistake and suspicion pass for a napoleon i received the address of a parisian agent 
in the Rue Carcassonne, whose name I will confide in you, in case you should ever require his services. For truly, although I had some difficulty in persuading him that I broke no faith in seeking to escape from France, a point in which self-respect obliged me to insist, though he himself treated it with irritating nonchalance, this agent proved a zealous fellow, and served me well. He fell in, too, with my proposals, complimented me on their boldness, and advanced me money to further them. I took a lodging au troisième in the Faubourg Saint-Honor, and for a fortnight walked Paris without an attempt at concealment, frequenting the cafés and spending my evenings at the theatre. Once or twice I encountered Soham himself, with whom I had parted on the friendliest terms, but he did not choose to recognise me. Perhaps he had his good-natured suspicions. I lived unchallenged, though walking all the while on a razor's edge. I had reckoned on two fair chances in my favour. There was a chance that the governor of Bayonne, on finding himself tricked, would for his own security suppress Marmont's letter, trusting that the affair would pass without inquiry. And there was the further chance that Marmont himself, on receipt of my notes, would remember the magnanimity which, to do him justice, he usually has at call, and give orders whistling off the pursuit. At any rate, I spent a fortnight in Paris, and no man questioned or troubled me. On the same morning that I paid my second weekly bill, the agent called on me with a capital plan of escape, which, being a facetious fellow, he announced as follows. I wish you good morning, Mr. Buck, he began. Sir, I answered, I have no claim to such a designation. My pleasures in Paris have been entirely respectable, and I dislike familiarity. Mr. Jonathan Buck, I should have said. Sir, I corrected him, if your clients are so numerous that you confuse their names, I must remind you that mine is McNeil. Pardon me, he replied, you have this morning inherited that of an American citizen who died suddenly last evening in an obscure lodging near the Barriere de Pantin, and in addition, a passport now waiting for him at the Foreign Office, if you have the courage to claim it. You resemble the deceased sufficiently to answer a passport's description, and if you secure it, I advise a speedy departure, with not for your objective. Accordingly, that same evening I left Paris for the Loire. You had the coolness to apply for that passport? And the good fortune to obtain it. If anything, my dear fellow, deserves the degree of astonishment your face expresses, it should rather be my consenting to use disguise, and so breaking through a self-denying ordinance, on which you have sometimes rallied me. Suspense, the danger from Bayonne hourly anticipated, had perhaps shaken my nerves. To be brief, I travelled to Nantes as Mr. Jonathan Buck, and in that name took passage in a vessel bound for Philadelphia, and on the point, as I understood, of lifting anchor. I slept that night on board the Minnie Dwight, this was the vessel's name, in full hope that my troubles were at an end. But next morning her captain came to me with a long face, and a report that some hitch had occurred between him and the port authorities over his clearing papers, and how long will this detain us, I asked, cutting short an explanation too technical for my understanding. He answered that he had been to his consul to protest, but could promise nothing short of a week's delay. Well, I saw nothing for it but to shut the cabin door, make a clean breast of my fears, and desire him to help me in devising some new plan. He was a good fellow, and ingenious too, for after he had dashed up my hopes with the news that a similar embargo lay on all foreign ships in the port, his face cleared, and said he, There's no help for it, but you must play the sea lawyer, and I the brutal tyrant. 
It's hard to upon a man who treats his crew like his own children, and victuals his ship like an eating house. But a seaman's rig and forty dollars is all you need, and with this you'll fare off to the American consuls and swear that I've made life a burden to you. Why forty dollars? I asked. He winked. That's earnest money that when you reach the United States you'll have the law of me for ill usage. And what shall I get in exchange? You will get a certificate enabling you to pass from port as a discharged sailor seeking a ship. I thanked him warmly and agreed, climbed down the ship's side in my new rig, waved an affecting farewell to my benevolent tyrant, and sought the American consul, who, it seemed, was used to discontented seamen. At all events, he accepted without suspicion his share in the dishonouring comedy, took my forty dollars, and made out my certificate. Here the captain glanced at Dr. Gonsalves, who blinked. Said I, even a Protestant must sometimes understand the relief of confession. Armed with this, he went on, I made my way to the mouth of the Loire, to Saint-Nazaire, between which and Le Croissy lies a small island where, in the present weakness of the French marine, English ships of war are suffered to water unmolested. For ten Napoleons I bribed an old fisherman to row me out at night to this island, which we reached at daybreak, and to our dismay found the anchorage empty. We cast our nets, however, for a blind, and, taking a few fish on our way, worked slowly down to the southwest, where my comrade, and a faithful one he proved, had heard reports of an English frigate nosing about the coast. Sure enough, between breakfast and noon, we caught sight of her topmasts, but to reach her we must pass in full view and almost within point-blank range of a coast battery. We were scarcely abreast of it when a round shot plumped into the sea ahead of us and brought us to, and almost at once a boatful of soldiers put off to board us. Their object, it turned out, was merely to warn us not to pass the battery, or the chances were five to one that the Englishmen would capture us. In no way discomposed, my friend maintained that we, he passed me off as his son, must either fish or starve, that we had come a long distance, knew every inch of the coast, and ran no danger. He backed this up by bribing the soldiers with our whole morning's catch, and in the end they contented themselves by insisting that we should wait under the battery until nightfall, and so depart. And this we did, but in the meanwhile, pretending our anxiety to avoid her, we cross-questioned the soldiers so precisely on the Englishman's bearings that, when darkness fell and we slipped our anchor, we ran straight down on her without the slightest difficulty. She was the agile sloop of twenty-four guns, and from her deck I waved goodbye to the fisherman, scarcely more delighted by my safety than he by his Napoleons, which, in my gratitude, I had raised to fifteen. The agile landed me in Plymouth without mishap, and so end my adventures. I ought to add, however, that, though my own conscience held no reproach for my trick upon Marmont, I sought and obtained permission from the war office to select a prisoner of my own rank and exchange him with France, and with him I sent a precise account, which will afford some amusement to the Duke of Ragusa's enemies, if he happened to have any at headquarters. You, my cousin, will doubtless consider this mere supererogation, but I should be glad of the Reverend Doctor's opinion we will reserve this, said the doctor, as question number five. And you promptly reshipped for Lisbon, followed the army to Salamanca and resumed your work, said I. Even so, but I suspect that these adventures have rattled me. I am not the man I was, else I had not succumbed so easily 
Dr. Mir Kubisolai. Will the Reverend Doctor complete the narrative by describing how he found me? In a ditch, said the Reverend Doctor placidly. My college was destroyed, my beloved Salamanca in ruins. To the philosopher, said I, all the world is a home, but especially such wine vaults are as found in Boeda. I saddled therefore my mule, loaded her with a very few books and still fewer sticks of furniture, more frugal even than Juvenal's friend Umbricius. Qui tota domus redo componitur una. On my road, and almost under the shadow of this rock, my mule, shied in the most ladylike fashion, had sight of a red coat prostrate in the dust. The rest you can guess. But assuredly I did not guess at the time that I had happened on one whose story will, if ever God restores me to my university, so illustrate my lectures as to make them appear that which they will not be, an entirely new set of compositions. Well, said I, the hour is late, and however cheerfully you men of conscience and of casuistry may look forward to spending the night in these caves, I have seen enough, and have enough imagination at the back of it to desire nothing so little. I will escort you, said the doctor. That was implied, I answered, and after shaking hands with my kinsman and promising to visit him on the morrow, I suffered myself to be guided back along the horrible passages. On the way the doctor Gonsalveth paused more than once to chuckle, and at each remove I found this indulgence more uncanny. In the great cellar we came upon the sergeant of the thirty-sixth, still slumbering. I stirred him with my foot, and sitting up he amicably invited us to join him in a drink. I did so, the doctor drawing it from the spigot into a pail. Might be worse, hiccuped the sergeant watching me. I agreed that it might be a great deal worse. Between us we steered him out, through the tunnel, along the ledge, and so to the archway under which Venus sparkled in the purple heaven. Here the doctor bade us good night, and left me to pilot my drunkard down the cliff. At the foot he shook hands with me, in a fervour of tipsy gratitude, and I returned the grasp with an emprossement, a passion almost, the exact grounds of which, unless he should happen to read these lines and remember the circumstances, contingencies equally remote. He will spend his life without surmising. End of part two. End of the Sellers of Rueda.